brunch last week. We're there at the amphitheater. If you were, I had a fabulous time. Um, I'm so enjoying all the different cycles of Dillon Community Church. We're like a split personality church. We're either in the amphitheater, we're here in the building. We're doing something different every time I turn around. It's wonderful. It's fun. It's fun. It's fun. If you were involved in planning that, um, you were up there serving in some way, you made food for that, uh, just stand up. I want to see how many people were here were involved. Stand up. I know there's more than two. I know there's more than three. I know there's more than six. There's got to be more than eight. All right, this is good. Can we say thank you to these people? That was fabulous. It's just fabulous. In the first service, um, there was a bunch of people that stood up, and it was mostly women. And um, I thought that was that was uh, interesting and neat. I was very grateful for them. Wonder why the men weren't doing more cooking. But uh, we'll come back to that. You have to ask my wife why she cooks and I don't. There's a reason, a good reason for that. Well, today we're going to uh, start in Ephesians. But I have a question kind of to start the conversation off. If a nation wanted to move away from racial tension and racial discrimination, how would it go about doing that? What What would it look like? How long would it take? What were the steps that you would go through? Some of you are old enough in here to remember. Um, I was somewhat young, but you remember when we started integration and busing. At the beginning of my junior high, uh, back when I was there, it was called junior high. Um, the way it was done in our town was we had a, a fence down the middle of our town. And on one side were the uh, Caucasians. On the other side were the minorities, mostly African-American. And they had their own campus. It was a junior high and a high school. We had our own campus, junior high and high school. So my two older brothers, when the time came to start junior high, they just walked down the street and off they went. So when it came time for me to go to junior high, my parents, my mom walked me out, put me on a bus. I wasn't prepared. I didn't know what was coming. I didn't know what was going to happen. I drove across to the other side of town where I had uh, never been before. We had uh, National Guard when we got there to help us into the school building, and I was pretty terrified. Now, fast forward um, 30 years from high school graduation, and I went to high school graduation. There was about 400, 450 students in my graduating class, and I'm guessing the ratio is about 50-50, Caucasian, African-American, and two African-Americans showed up. So when I walked in, my first, very first thought when I walked in was one of sadness that uh, we had not solved the problem. And then, as part of the preparation to get ready for the class reunion, they had a questionnaire that we filled out. And one of the questions that they asked us was, what's your predominant, what's your dominant memory of high school? And um, overwhelming, overwhelming, 95% or more said racial tension. And that's, that's what I remember, was racial tension. I remember what we call race riots every week, every week. That's, that's my junior high and high school years. And I'm grateful for my children that uh, we took that step as a nation because they didn't have to experience that. Have we solved the problem? I don't think we have. But have we started a direction uh, in a different direction than when I grew up? Yes. How long does it take to resolve racial tension? Right. And how do you do it? And is it even achievable? Ephesians 
is going to deal with that very question. Now that we're back in the building, in the amphitheater, we did snapshots of identity theft of Jesus out of John. Now I'm going to invite you into a story, almost a video, if you will, the book of Ephesians, where we're going to start and we're going to work our way through this argument and we're going to look at how this problem is resolved because it relates very much to Dillon Community Church. And I think you'll see how when we finish. So we will we'll be doing a little bit more work in the text uh, because we're back here. We're family now, not as many visitors. The visitors have gone home, back to school. And so we're going to spend some time together as a family working on some, what I think in the elders think are some very important questions. We've entitled this series, Waking the Dead. What happens when a dead person wakes up? We don't have much experience in it. I don't. Uh, Maybe you might. But Ephesians is talking about that. Ephesians 2, you were dead and your trespasses and sins. And then you've been raised alive together with Christ. Waking the dead. So what happens when the dead wake up? How do we change? How do we become something different? Well, to begin, right off the bat, Ephesians 1, we have a textual problem. Paul, an apostle, uh, there's Bibles in your seats there, by the way, if you want to follow along. We will be spending time in Ephesians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Your Bibles probably have a footnote, if you have a study Bible, that the word Ephesus does not occur in the earliest manuscripts. Uh, It's just a blank. If you can look in the earliest manuscripts, it's just a blank. There's nothing there, which is kind of fun because it raises the question. Maybe this is the one place uh, in the Bible where inspiration is completed by us. We fill it in. So to God's holy people in Summit County, Colorado. And I'm going to argue that that's actually the case. I do not think that this is a letter addressed specifically to Ephesus even though that's the title in your English Bibles, for two reasons. One I just mentioned. But the second one is it's missing all of the favorite things we see of the other epistles. In the prayer, there's nothing personal that, that Paul is talking about Ephesus. In the conclusion, there's no personal references. Greet so-and-so, say hello to so-and-so, that sort of stuff, which we see in all of his letters. This is the one letter where it's noticeably absent. And when you read through the book of Ephesians, uh, there's no personal references, very little personal reference to the city of Ephesus, even though we know from Acts that Paul had a wonderful relationship with this city. So wonderful, in fact, he spent a lot of time there. On his way back to uh, Jerusalem to stand trial, he stops by, and the elders from Ephesus come down to the seaport. They walk down to meet him, and they wept together because they realized that that would be the last time they would see each other. Deep passion, deep relationship, deep emotion. So why doesn't Paul reference that? I think instead this is what's known as a circular letter. This is a letter that was sent to all the churches in Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. And he's going to deal with a problem that was found in all of those churches. So it's a circular letter. It's meant to be moved around from church to church. In fact, if you jump to your right two books to Colossians, at the very end of Colossians, he says uh, in chapter 4 something very interesting. Um, Chapter 4, verse 16. After this letter, that's the letter to the Colossians, after this letter has been read to you, 
see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans. So send a copy of your letter over to Laodicea and have the Christians there read it. It's very common. Transfer the mail back and forth. But then he says, then you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Oh, we don't have a copy of the letter to Laodicea. I wonder and I kind of suspect that this is the letter uh, that they had received in Laodicea. So they're swapping letters. So this letter, I think, has all of the characteristics of a circular letter. It's dealing with the churches at large. And it's being uh, rotated around through Asia Minor because they had a real problem that Paul had to deal with. Okay, another clue that this letter is unique. Normally in an epistle, when you have the pronoun us or we and you, the we are the authors or the us are the authors and you are the recipients. So in the letter to the Philippians, you, we automatically know, are the Philippians. And when we say I or we, we automatically know that's Paul or the team that's helping Paul write the letter. I think it's different in this one letter. And here's why. Turn with me to chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember, chapter 2, verse 11, remember that formerly you, who are Gentiles by birth. So the you here are the Gentiles. Chapter 3, verse 1, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. So if the you are the Gentiles, who is the us? Jews? It's the Jews. So what happens when you frame the epistle this way? Here's what I think we're going to find. Paul is going to start his argument writing as a typical Jew thought. And then he's going to surprise us. So remember when we read this, because at this point in time, the Jews and the Gentiles... They had learned to live together within society, transacting business, being down at the Roman baths, that sort of thing. They connected with each other together. But when it came to spiritual things like the law, rituals, rules, rites, passages, all that sort of thing, you're very staunch. You're not like us. Stay out. You're not one of the chosen ones. You're not one of the blessed ones. Messiah is coming through our line. Sucks to be you. You're a Gentile. Stay out. In fact, around the temple, around the holy section of the temple, the inner courts, there's a, there was a balustrade. There was a fence, a literal fence that through archaeology, we have discovered the signs hanging there. Josephus actually refers to it. And the signs are pretty simple. They say something along the lines of, to the Gentiles, stay out at the risk of death. Your death. You're not allowed in here. That's blasphemy. You're unclean. You're not like us. Stay out. So we have a divided world here. Just the opposite of what God intended. In Exodus 19, when the Jews are standing at the base of Mount Sinai, they've just been let out of slavery. He says, if you obey my commands, I will make you a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. Priest on behalf of whom? The rest of the world. So God's intention was that the Jewish people would reach out to the world. And they had corrupted this. Said, you're not like us. Stay out. You're not clean. It's, 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 it's a complete turn away from what God intended. 
in the scriptures. So now we're going to read through this passage, this first chapter, and I'm going to ask you to keep in mind, and I'm going to help you, that this is a Jew writing as a Jew. So Paul is putting himself in the shoes of a typical Jew who looked at the Gentiles as outside the realm of God. He is presenting the story as from a Jewish perspective because the Gentiles were outsiders to the plan of God. So let's start. The very first place he begins in chapter 3. My, t- my translation says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yours may say, Blessed be. He starts right away as a Jewish person. And that's to bless God. Blessed be God. When's the last time we sat down and said, God, we bless you? That's very, very unusual in our way of thinking, isn't it, to do that? It's very consistent throughout Jewish literature in the Old Testament and outside the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. God, we bless you. So perhaps the, the, uh, the, the correct phrase is not, may God bless America. Maybe the correct phrase is, phrase is may America bless God. Think about the difference in that. And that's how he starts. Blessed is God. Blessed be God. Blessings to you, God. See the difference? And he's the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. Now, it doesn't say this in your text, and you have several times I'm going to add this word, so get used to this. Who has blessed us Jews in the heavenly realms. He has blessed us Jews. This phrase, heavenly realms, we'll come back to it. It's used five times in the book, so it's very important. And uh, it's talking about where do we actually live our life. See, we have a dilemma, don't we? We live in a world with five senses and three dimensions, and yet we're asked to fight a battle and live life outside of that, isn't it? So Paul's actually going to talk about these heavenly realms where we coexist at the same time. I'm convinced if I could take these off and put on spiritual glasses, this place would look very different. Some of you aren't as pretty as you are today. Others of you will look a lot better, Jim Weesey, for instance. You know? (laughs) It would just look different, wouldn't it? And so he's going to begin to give us insight, if you will, of what this world looks like around us, where we live in two places at the same time. So the heavenly realms. So he's blessed us in the heavenly realms um, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Okay, now when you put that together, he has blessed us, Jews, he has blessed us. That means it's all done. It's finished. It's accomplished. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. We don't need to ask for more blessing. That's the implication. We need to learn how to appropriate the blessings that have already been secured, have already been won by Christ. We Jews are in a privileged position. I'm really sorry that you guys are all Gentiles because you're not included. But we have. And we've received this blessing with every spiritual blessing. And then he does something very interesting in verse 4. He breaks this down into two sections. In verse 4, 5, and 6, he talks about the role of God the Father. And in verse 7, starting there, he talks about the role of uh, God the Son. And what role did they play? Now remember, he's using a very standard Jewish argument here. And this is, think of these verses. Uh, It's easy to get kind of dry. These verses, as think of a waterfall that just trickles down over rocks, right? And these are cascading statements of how great God is. 
how wonderful God is, how personal and loving God is. And if the Gentiles have heard this, and they have throughout Asia Minor in more than one place over and over and over again, how in the world is this going to help them turn to the one true living God when the Jews are saying, we have the blessing. We've received the blessing. You haven't. I'm really sorry that you were born a Gentile. I know you couldn't help it, but you're outside the realm of God. So let's think these things through as we read through them, the blessing. Blessings that God has brought. Verse 4. For he, that's God, chose us in him, I think that's Christ, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Yes, he chose us. That is the word for election. It creates all kinds of controversy in theological texts and among uh, different denominations. I think we should just set all that aside and look at the key point. He chose us for himself. This is a statement about God's love. This is not a statement about exclusion. The Jews genuinely believed that God had chosen their nation, and he had. What had he chosen them for? If I can use a kind of an older metaphor, here's God, and here's a kaleidoscope of nations, Genesis 10 and 11. He creates a rainbow of nations, nation of many colors, okay? And he chose one to reach the rest. By the way, in, in, uh, in, in, science, in social science studies, we, we talk about racism. We don't talk about that very much in theology because in theology, we believe in one human race. If you could line up the darkest skinned person and go to the lightest skinned person, you just see a, 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 a gradient of color. But it's one human race made in God's image. So we don't talk like that. So I'm using language out of social science, racism and that sort of thing. So here's God. And he chose this kaleidoscope of nations, and he picked one, Genesis 12, to reach the rest. So Israel was elected. They were chosen by God for a specific purpose, to go reach the rest of the world. And they had failed to do that. Failed miserably to do that. And so when we talk about election here, we get caught up on the wrong part of the argument. This is a statement about God's incredible love that he chose us. Again, I'm sorry that you're Gentiles. But he did choose us. That's pretty clear in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, in the, in the uh, Hebrew scriptures. He chose us before the creation of the world. This is a statement about God's love. Remember back, those of you that have children, remember back when you first got married and, and one of your dreams was to have children, to raise a family? Uh, I realize that dream might have changed once you had the kids, but... Turn into a nightmare. <laughs> exactly. No, but just teasing. Do you remember the anticipation? You look forward to it. I've done lots of marriage counseling, as has Mark and others. And that's always part of the dream. I can't wait to have children. You decided, God willing to have children, before the foundation of your marriage. Before the creation of your marriage. You desired that. That was a positive thing. Again, this is a statement about the deep love of God. This is not just some theological verse that we just throw aside. No, no. He chose us for himself before the foundation of the world. This is a very compassionate, loving God. In a world where the gods didn't even think about you. In a world where our relationship to the gods had nothing to do with whether they loved us. It was simply, let's appease them so they would care for us. Here's a bold statement in a dark world about, we serve the one true living God who thought about you 
long before you were created. Just like your parents did you long before you were conceived. See how personal this becomes when you put it in this context? And then he says, um, he did this so that we would be holy and blameless in his sight. Holy and blameless. What does holy mean? I love the Christian words that we use in church. The words are actually very good because they're usually biblical. And back when they were written, you could ask a person in the first century world and they understood all this language. This was language that meant something to them. For instance, we talk about the gospel. What does the gospel mean? Well, if you lived in the first century world, you would have understood the gospel is that time when the Caesar stood up and said, let me tell you what's going on in the empire. All's good. We actually do that today. We call it the State of the Union speech of the president. Right? We have we ever heard a president, it doesn't matter what side they're on, stand up and say, you know, I just got to tell you, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. We have no idea what to do. <laughs> That's never happened, has it? They all may say, you know, we're facing some challenges, but we got it under control. That's the gospel of the president. And so the people in Asia Minor had been raised with the gospel of Caesar. And then Paul comes along and says, let me tell you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. All the heads would have said, what? There's another gospel out there? We didn't know about that. So the language that is in our Bible was very common to them. They understood it. Holy is one of those terms. And we have a difficult time making sense of it. I, uh, I thought it'd be really fun one day to do a test. I won't do it this week. I'll give you time to study. We'll give you a test and we'll say, what does uh, sanctification mean? What does justification mean? What does holy mean? What does gospel mean? What does all that mean? And what, I think what you'd find is it's a real, real challenge to define in today's words. Holy just means something very simple. It means to be different. You learned it as set apart for a special purpose. Nothing wrong with that. As long as you don't get caught up in the set apart being, I'm not going to belong or be part of you. Okay? Holy means to be just to be different. We are different than those who have yet to come to know Christ. And we were meant to enjoy life with them and live with them. Even the language of us and them is, is, is counterintuitive to what God is trying to accomplish. We are all humans on this planet meant to live together. And because I'm holy, declared holy, I might add, Hebrews 10, by God, that means that I'm, I have a different purpose. And that purpose is to love these people, everyone I meet, as much as I can. So he says, we were made to be holy and blameless. Okay, then we, uh, verse 5, in love he predestined, ooh, there's that second controversial word, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. Don't be afraid of the word predestined. Don't be afraid of that at all. Really, you predestined your children, didn't you? Didn't you determine what values you're going to raise them with? What experiences you're going to give them? All that sort of stuff. This is a good word. God put in motion things that affect you. He predestined you to adoption as sonship, as sons, sons and daughters. Don't be afraid of the word. It speaks of God's movement in our lives to help us come to know him. Just like parents you do with your children. So don't get caught up in the theological discussion of this. Capture the sense of a very compassionate God that we serve. He predestined us to adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. 
to the praise of his glorious grace. By the way, he predestined us Jews. This was unique to the Jews. That's how they thought. Verse 7, in him, we Jews have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. A price has been paid by God. That's what the sacrificial system is all about. It's paying a price. We have found redemption. He's beginning to build in this whole concept of the Messiah, which is new in Jewish thinking, that the Messiah would carry all this off. He lavished on us God's grace. He just poured it on us. It's just rich. David talks about the, the, the oil of blessing, the oil of gladness, being poured in the Psalms. It's just running down our beards, our hair. The more oil, the better. And here he lavished on us this grace. By the way, if we come to your house to pray with you because you need us to pray with you, we anoint you with oil, we will give you the option just to dump the oil on you if you'd like that. Okay? Or we can do it the 21st century way. We'll just anoint you with oil and we'll pray. He lavished on us this grace. It's just overflowing. It's so rich. It's so abundant. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us, the Jews, the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. The Jewish people received the canon, didn't they? They received the word of God. They received the sacred text, the Bible, the Hebrew scriptures. We don't know what this mystery is yet. He hasn't told us. By the way, mystery in the ancient world is not something you try to figure out. It's something you can't figure out. It's not like the modern day version of a mystery. It's something you can't figure out. Unless a God reveals it, you don't stand a chance. And so God has revealed some mystery. He's opened up the book, so to speak, and let us see. We're going to find out what that is. So he made known to us Jews the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in the Messiah. Okay? Which he purposed in the Messiah. Paul's careful to use the word Christ here. To be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and under the earth. Galatians 4.4 tells us that at the perfect time, God sent the Messiah. At the perfect time. So this when this mystery that he's talking about goes into effect at the perfect time when the Messiah comes. Okay, in him, verse 11, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. God is God. That's a simple statement. God is God, and I'm glad he is. You don't want me to be God. And honestly, I don't want you to be God. God is God, and I'm not. In order that we, the Jews, here's the phrase, that we, who were the first to put our hope in the Messiah, might be for the praise of his glory. We, the Jews, were the first to put our hope in the coming Messiah. That's true, isn't it? If the book stopped there, it'd be no different than Jewish rhetoric. The Jewish argument in the first century would be no different. You're not like us. Stay out. You're not clean. You're not allowed into the holy parts. If you've ever been to a temple of another religion, a Hindu, a Buddhist temple, they have parts ripped off. If you're not Hindu, you can't go past this point. If you're not Buddhist, you can't go past this point. If you're not Jewish, you can't come past this point. You're not like us. If, the, if it stopped right here, right here, what a surprise. What, an, what a lack of surprise. What a terrible ending. But then here it is. Look in verse 13. And you also, surprise, surprise. So the Gentiles by now have been lulled into a stupor with these, all these first 11 or 
12 verses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've heard this rhetoric before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he surprises them. Guess what? Here's where the twinkle in the eyes come out. And you also. All of you, Gentiles. And you also were included in the Messiah when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you heard that word of truth and you believed, see it? Verse 13, and you believed, you were included right alongside of us. The first step toward ethnic reconciliation, racial tension, is to reach across the divide. That's the first step. Paul does it. He does it tongue in cheek. Guess what? I'm sorry that you were born a Gentile. We received all the blessings. And then he stops and says, and guess what? And you were included in those blessings. Just a hint of what this mystery is about. Because prior to this, we didn't know the Gentiles were included. Not openly. So this book is about you, my friends. This is about Dillon Community Church. And what happened? You received uh, the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Romans 8. All of creation cries out to be redeemed. All of creation, animals, everything. And he said he gave you, Gentiles, the same spirit he gave to us as a deposit, as a promise, until the redemption of all things. So what do we learn? What happens when the dead are awakened? We begin to move toward unity. That's what we learn. We reach across these deep lines and we bring about unity. This unity is the first step in effective evangelism, by the way. People pay attention to us. I got a haircut yesterday and the lady cutting my hair said, so what do you do? I'm a pastor. Are you the new pastor at DCC? <laughs> Word travels really fast in this town. I said, yeah. Do you, uh, do you go there? No. Uh, you know me by now. Why not? <laughs> well, I don't believe that. Why not? <laughs> just start pressing and pushing. Fortunately, she didn't scout me or anything. <laughs> what you say matters. The way you treat people matters. The way you care for one another matters. If I had just said one disparaging comment about anybody in our church, uh, that would have been destructive, wouldn't it? I love all of you. Of course, I'm not going to say anything disparaging. I'm proud to be at this part of this church. I'm proud to be here. Unity is really critical, and we're going to talk about it. Um, for some of you, that may look like, what does it happen in your family? What does it look like in your family, in your marriage? For some of you, what does it look like with people that maybe you aren't connected to very well? Something came up. But more importantly, going forward as a church, how do we guard it? That's what Paul is going to address here. How do we make sure that we protect it? Because, newsflash, Satan is coming after you and us as a church. If we're faithful, we can't help it. He's coming after us. All right, let's move towards some community expression. The elders, the ushers, I mean, are going to come take the offering. And uh, I just want to say, on behalf of the leadership of our church, thank you for giving. You guys are very generous. You're very faithful. You bring us joy. Let me just pray and thank God for you and for the, the offering. Father, we do thank you, Lord, for this offering. 
I know that you put it on the hearts of people to give, and we are grateful to, to be privileged by it. And Lord, thank you for this wonderful congregation, for their sacrifice, their generosity. We, uh, uh, elders, the staff, we all just love them deeply and enjoy it. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's sing the song we just heard. If I stand, let me stand on the promise that you have borne me through. And if I can't let me fall, the grace that first brought me through. And if I sing, let me sing with the joy that is born in all these songs. And if I weep, let it be as a man who is longing for his own. There's more that rises in the morning than the sun. More that shines in the night than There's more than just a fire to keep me warm And a shelter that's larger than this room There's a loyalty that's deeper than mere sentiment A music higher than the songs that I can sing The stuff of earth competes with the elites I owe only to the giver of all so if I stand, let me stand on the promise that you bore me through. And if I stand, let me fall on the grace that first brought me to you. And if I sing, let me sing with the joy that is born in all these songs. And if I weep, let it be as a man who is longing for his home. As the communion servers uh, come up and prepare for communion, Let's talk about communion just for a second. Mark mentioned that uh, we're back in the building. It'll be a little bit different for you. We have plenty of space up here. Communion is a, one of those wonderful times to express unity. In fact, that's what it's designed to do. We all come to the table. When I go overseas and I teach in foreign countries, one of the questions I ask, using the metaphor of the, of the table, is uh, I, here's what I bring to the table. What do you bring to the table? It's very easy as an American to walk over and they honor us and they... They give us all kinds of praise and glory and, and, um, and to feel like somehow we, we've brought something that they need. But that's only half the story. So what I bring is theological education, which is hard for them to get. And so I ask the students overseas, what do you bring to the table? This, this table is a statement of unity right here. It's a statement of unity. In 1 Corinthians, when Paul was talking, the problem was that they weren't... Um, they weren't unified. They were hurting one another with this. They did a little differently than we do it now. And the people would come early and eat all the food. So some of the poor people, when they came, they couldn't have food. There wasn't any food to celebrate. And it was creating division in the church. And Paul really criticizes them for that. 
This is a statement of unity. So if you have someone here, this is a perfect chance. Have someone here, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's a child that's with you, a son or a daughter, or maybe it's a friend across the aisle, and somehow there's tension. What a great time to say, I don't, I don't understand all of it. Can we, can we just set this aside and celebrate together as believers? On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So when you come forward, guess what? I'm going to say, we are. This is a body of Christ broken for you. After supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. So when you come up and take this, I'm going to say, this is the blood of Christ. Shed for you. Shed for you. Even though none of you deserve it. That's why it's a statement of unity. We love people because Christ loved them first. When we're up here, if you're praying, raise your hands for those of you that are praying. Okay? So find someone. Community servers, go ahead and get your go ahead and get your trays. So find someone to pray with. Tell us a praise what God is doing. How can we lift you up in prayer? How can we help with anything? Alright? So come forward and receive communion. Come on up. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Perfect submission, perfect delight, visions of rapture now burst on my side, angels descending. 
Thanks for being a, a wonderful church. Nancy and I just love being part of this church. We have so enjoyed it. Uh, as you go out this week and you reflect on, um, as the Holy Spirit reminds you, and I hope he does, and you reflect on unity, think about all the different metaphors of what it means to, to be unified. In some respects, it's being made, transformed into the image of Christ. That means we're becoming a true human. You're becoming what you were meant to be all along. It means putting others first. You're created for that. How quickly unity begins to develop when you put others first. It means to serve. It's another metaphor. Action. That's what we're made for, isn't it? It means trusting in the Lord. Relying on His strength. When I am weak, He is strong. There's another example. Enjoy all those rich metaphors because they all come back to the same thing. We belong to something bigger than ourselves. And it's our responsibility to guard and protect it. It's very important. So enjoy the week, go in peace, and serve one another. You're dismissed. So if I stand, let me stand on the promise that you bore me through. And if I can't let me fall on the grace that first brought me I sing, let me sing with the joy that is born in all these songs. And if I weep, let it be as a man who is longing for his home. There's more that rises in the morning than the sun. More that shines in the night than the moon. 
There's more than just this fire to keep me warm In a shelter that is larger than this room There's a loyalty that's deeper than your sentiment A music higher than the songs that I can sing The self of earth competes for the legions I owe only to the giver of all good things. So let me stand, let me stand on the promise that you have borne me through. And if I can, let me fall on the grace that first brought me to you. And if I sing, let me sing. Joy that is born in all 